This was Germany in the early 30s. Hello, stranger. Full of life and love. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, ladies and gentlemen, Fräulein Sally Bowles. This was Sally Bowles in the early 30s. Full of life. I love parties. Doesn't my body drive you wild with desire? And love. Special girl. I'm going to be a great film star. <laughs> that is a booze and sex. Don't get me first. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. And I'm Drea Clark. Samantha Ellis, I think, is actually at a German cabaret, because you don't know what it is, but she is missed. So. <laughs> we will all be reunited next week, I'm sure, but we are going to be going all the way to 1972 to talk about Bob Fosse's Cabaret, the second of our musical March movies. Leave it to Sam to not be here on the episode where she had not seen the movie before, and it was from 1972. I was just going to say, I don't have any proof still that she's seen a film past 1965. This was going to be a real <laughs> testament. It's been an exciting twist that she has slipped between the fingers of the 70s yet again. The 70s will get her one day. I promise it will happen. We're talking about Cabaret. Based on the theatrical production of the same name, it takes place in the Weimar Republic era of Berlin and tells the story of a group of people that work at a cabaret club called the Kit Kat Club, predominantly seen through the eyes of British expat Brian, played by Michael York, as he interacts with the star of the Kit Kat Club, Sally Bowl, played by Liza Minnelli, as the rise of Nazism takes over. It's a delightful romp, right, Dre? You say that, but it actually is a delightful romp. <laughs> That's one of the strengths of Cabaret that I'm sure we'll get into, is set up a very specific world for something that's reflecting a historical moment in time, and that the Kit Kat Club existed in that moment of time. What's going on with the rise of Nazism is both reflected in it, but also how the dancers and performers, it's mostly under the surface and the times that it's brought up, it doesn't go well for the people. It's still a delightful romp. I would still classify it that way. I say it a bit sarcastically because the plot doesn't really sound like it would be fun, but this is a very fun film in some of the weirder ways, but that's the testament to Bob Fosse, who is one of my favorite directors, in that he would often take stories that seem very dour, the cinematography and the use of dance and the use of music and the actors infuse some vibrancy and some life to them. The movie that I was going to recommend for this and I didn't because I feel like this is a bit more representative of the musical nature, but I was going to suggest All That Jazz, which is a biographical look at Bob Fosse's life as told through this fictionalized, but not really, character. You watch through that movie, the Fosse 
facsimile go through cheating and being a bit of a jerk and having open heart surgery and the issues of being an auteur. None of that necessarily lends itself to this movie that at times feels very fun and very wild and very raucous in how it presents being a man in the 1970s. But I think that's the Fosse touch to everything that makes this movie work. This was based on a series of semi-autobiographical stories written by Christopher Isherwood, who did live in Weimar, Berlin in the late 20s to early 30s. He was an openly gay man, and he really enjoyed that Berlin was a place where you could be gay and enjoy this nightlife. And that for 1929 to 1930, that sounds very shocking, but still even in 1972, the use of androgyny in this movie and the use of sexuality, this is a movie that talks about threesomes and guys on guys and girls on guys and girls on girls. It's, it's this very shocking movie that must have still been shocking in 1972. I have no basis in fact for that, though. Yes, having not been part of the circuit in 1972, neither of us can be held to that. I'm also an enormous Bob Fosse fan. Even Sweet Charity, poor Sweet Charity, his first film and it bombed, it was before this, and he had to do a lot of hard selling of why he should do Cabaret. And honestly, I cannot imagine how terrible this film would be in anyone else's hand. Fosse's sensibility and... His dance style, there's only a handful of modern choreographers who have had the cultural impact and who invented an entire movement style. Merce Cunningham in the modern dance world, and then there's obviously several in ballet that would have the same resonance. When you watch this movie, and it's apparent in Sweet Chariot, it's apparent in all of his work, but it's best used in cabaret and something you brought up right away, especially since we did a musical month where we wanted to contrast a couple of films. So previously we talked about swing time, which is funny because in the world of these movies, the activities of cabaret take place five years. The same before. time that yeah. Yeah, swing time was. It takes place even before Swing Time, but around the same time. And yet what we're getting, because it's through this 1970s lens, although again, in the 30s, like you said, with Isherwood and people, not just in Berlin, but other liberal and bohemian pockets, that expression and even how dance was used was so different. From the very first song which is mine hair and it blows my mind that some of the three biggest songs that I think you think of when you think of this musical were added expressly for the cinema version, not for the stage version is insane. But in mine hair, how Fosse reinvigorated dance and reinvented the shapes that bodies could make. There's always been a very traditional oh, the line and extension of a body should look like this. And he cuts it in half. And, no, I'd like you to put your pelvis in this really weird place. And then also make your feet, instead of being pointed, which has always been the thing, always have to be at 90 degrees. And then you have to do this 
shoulder dip. He was doing all of these weird body shaping things and his camera work and directing matches that. Having watched so recently something so guided by Fred Astaire's aesthetic, Astaire, of course, had his own impact. He loved a waltz and wanted to change up the syncopation to fit with both tap and ballroom styles that he loved. You could see the entire body the entire time, these long sweeping takes. Whereas as soon as we jump into Cabaret, we're in on characters and it's the idea of this broken body shapes at times are just framing the body shapes behind them. Such inventive work in more than one medium at more than one time. It's almost hard to understand just how revolutionary it was. A couple of things I want to break down to what you brought up. So I'll jump back and forth. When you talked about contrasting this with swing time, I didn't necessarily plan that that way. But now that I hear that, it does make sense that this is taking place in the late 20s, early 30s. Swing time is 1936. So you have a very short amount of distance between the literal filming of Swing Time versus the fictionalized retconning of Cabaret, where you're looking back at the 30s with this sense of, I don't even want to say nostalgia. I don't think Fosse has any sense of nostalgia for this time period. And we'll, we can talk about meaning and fascism and all of that in a second, where Swing Time, as we talked in that film, was showing the return of America from the Great Depression. So you had characters that were back in the nightclubs, back to, yeah, money was a problem, but we're not destitute. Cabaret has a couple of different things. So not only is it earlier in the Depression, but it's also taking place in a different country. And if you look at films about Germany in the early 30s versus this film about Germany made in 72, but going back to the 30s, it's a very different layer of history. The Kit Kat Club is this very isolated place of decadence that is sharply contrasted with where Brian and Sally are living in this boarding house that's filled with eccentrics. But at the same time, it's certainly comfortable. You look at what their bedrooms look like in this movie, nobody's hurting. You know, they talk about not having money, but if that was the going price for something in New York, not even a wealthy person could afford that. So there's still that element of fantasy to it, even though it is more realistic. The sense of dance that Drea brought up, I love Fosse's style. You can always tell a Fosse immediately. Like if you watch 1953's Kiss Me Kate, they gave him one number and you can tell immediately what his number is because it just looks like a Fosse number. Fosse tends to get a bit more credit for what Chicago did in terms of having to present the use of music. So if you watch Chicago, they do the song and dance through Roxy Hart's head. So it's not her just bursting into song. She's actually having a fantasy in which she is this great singer and she is performing the numbers. And there's this high level of fantasy to the performance. In 1936 with Swing Time, characters singing and bursting into song had a bit of a tangential connection in that it does take place in a nightclub. 
But that was really it. Characters out in the snow singing a song with no music and it makes sense. Whereas Fosse had to try to come up with a reason for why. And, and this is a bit more overt in that the characters are only performing in the nightclubs. The music is diegetic to the plot line. The dancing and all of that just makes it look like this is a landscape of hedonism. And I love how that is charted throughout the movie. At various points throughout the film, you'll look at how wealth and decadence and all of that changes until eventually the bottom falls out in that final sequence. And it's interesting because the original cabaret, I should add, I saw this story first as the stage version. Ooh, I have not seen the stage version, so I just have the movie. Yeah, I saw the stage version in just a traveling show in Minneapolis. A traveling show. You know what I mean? Like the touring company. The stage version is different because it's not diegetic sound as an excuse. The stage version is more that immersive musical where people stop and sing to you how they're feeling. And there are, like I said, a handful of different songs that differ from one to the other. There's obviously the stage elements as well, but it's a lot more. This one, it's a very sophisticated use because the songs act almost like how a soundtrack does in a more traditional non-musical movie because they're very much punctuating the theme of the moment. Obviously, you mentioned the threesome. One of the big narrative things that comes eventually for Liza Minnelli and Michael York's characters who have become lovers and in this pocket of happiness but still conflict-ridden because of where they are. They're wooed by this baron. And so I'm going to say this about almost all the songs, but it's uh, it's the most beautifully, economically sparse but tight choreography for this song called Money. And it's just Liza's character and Joel Gray's character, the master of ceremonies, doing the song. But it's just to highlight the fact that she especially, they start engaging and hanging out with this man because he's rich and is buying them things. And so then to cut to this, oh, and this is when we're going to do the part of the stage show when we sing Monies. It handles that very well. The only non-stage-based song is the one exterior song that happens, which is when Brian, the Michael York character, and then this Baron are out. A place you'd imagine Oktoberfest happening, some outdoor beer garden thing. And this bleached blonde young Hitler youth starts singing a, a song that's one of the Nazi anthems. The crowd around him starts to join in. The music in this more intentional and purposeful. I can imagine, because sadly, I know plenty of people who think of themselves that they don't like musicals. And I would say that Cabaret is probably a musical that they could enjoy because the music is all instigated by something. It's all part of a show. And I think the thing that's off-putting for people who are not fans of musicals is that strange disconnect of, oh, you're singing now. Oh, you're singing how you feel. Oh, I don't like that. Whereas this, they're like, oh, they're singing because they're cabaret performers. The shaping of it is so smart, though, of how they integrated that new music to give us 
a beat that reflects what's going on at that moment in the story and that also continues throughout to give little nods to this broader state of Germany. It's so smart. You bring up the emphasis on this would be a musical for people who don't like musicals. I definitely consider this almost an anti-musical in certain instances because Fosse had worked in Hollywood in the musical era of the 40s into the 50s as the musical started to die. It almost feels like a lot of his movies are in response to that very over-the-top staid elements of the musical where emotion is put through the song, but there's this inherent line of artifice to it. Watching Cabaret, you brought up the Tomorrow Waits for Me scene. I love this movie, but I think the Tomorrow Waits for Me sequence is the best scene because of how utterly terrifying it is. And sadly, very, very relevant for our times. This movie is dated very well. And I hate to say that because I don't believe that should have been the point. The Tomorrow Waits for Me sequence is the ultimate anti-musical moment in this film. It's the cast members, Brian and Max and Sally. I don't think Sally's there. I think it's just the men. I didn't rewatch the movie last night. But I bring that up because I think it's significant that it's out of all of the characters who seem oblivious to the world, she continues to be the most oblivious. So it's, again, like I said, all of the choices, it's a smart reckoning that it's the two men who are there in the face of it. This young boy stands up who looks like the epitome of white Aryan supremacy and starts singing this song. This was not part of the original play. Everybody starts singing and it's this great rousing story of pride and excellence in your country until you realize that he's a little Nazi singing this song. I always think of, and I don't know if this has been confirmed as a reference or an homage, or if I'm just thinking it is, I see a lot of commonality to this and the La Marseille scene in Casablanca. I don't know how well-versed you are in Casablanca. Oh, yeah. I 100% agree. I like that. The La Marseille scene in Casablanca, for those who haven't seen it, is meant to be this rallying moment for the people who are essentially good patriots, friends of the free French, and they are singing the French national anthem as like an F.U. to the people and by proxy the Germans. That movie was released in 1942 in the heart of World War II to say that you weren't going to ruin us. You weren't going to destroy us. Here is this rallying cry. It's a very powerful sequence. And I feel like Fosse is almost using that as this homage to say songs do have that power. Because in this scene in Cabaret, it is terrifying to hear these good, seemingly upstanding people start singing this song. And it's meant to assert the fact that fascism and Nazism are good. And that's what they want. How dare you try to take us out? And it's this really weird dichotomy if you know musical history. The blend of it is such a... I keep using the word sophisticated because I am not, so it is the word that's always in my (laughs) mind. But the blend of those things, like you said, it's truly striking. And even more to illustrate, if you haven't seen this, when the youth starts singing this song, it starts in a very tight close-up of his face, so it pulls back. You do not realize at first 
that you are watching a young SS member, or he might have been Hitler Youth. He's sort of a teenager. And then it pulls out and reveals his full uniform. And by the end, all of these people have chimed in, and he's just standing at a full Heil Hitler salute while singing the final refrain. So the balancing that with the rest of the music we've seen, even within that framing, the idea of how you're setting up the scene for Brian and the Baron to see this, because they've already had a disagreement about the Nazis, a small one, because it's a really well-handled, small thread throughout and not over the top of the head. But essentially the Baron, who's a wealthy German, who is like, oh, I'm not worried about the Nazis. His initial comment is, well, they're terrible, but at least they'll do something about the communists. And Brian is like, well, who's going to do something about them? And he's like, oh, Germany. And so when you get to this scene that's handled in this way, that's not this slow pull out and reveal Brian and the Baron. And then Brian says, after all of the townspeople start standing up, singing along, some of them also doing the salute. Do you still think you can just handle this? That's it. They don't continue that conversation at the end of that relationship beat, but it's this small thing of having it peppered through. And the idea of one, how Fosse films a musical moment, even this one, in taking advantage of how much he loves the language of cinema and using the eye of the camera. The other thing that really struck my mind, I love you comparing that moment to something in Casablanca because I kept thinking there were a few of the stage sequences that I was like, oh, Baz Luhrmann loves this movie. Yes, There's so much in Moulin Rouge that eventually reflects this, but what Cabaret does and what Bob Fosse did with it, a film like Moulin Rouge, you can look at classical, like you can look at Busby Berkeley, you can look at a whole range of, we've recently talked about An American in Paris, which as you know, I adore, and I could watch the 20 minute dance segment for 14 hours. And as you know, I do not like. I know. That's why I had to lead with how I like it. But all of those films are trying to feel big and expansive and more than just a camera with the Kit Kat Club and with Bob Fosse's choice to frame things on that stage. He has literally hemmed himself in to this small space to a small stage even. And yet the inventiveness and what he's doing with the camera in the small confines is truly remarkable. It's interesting to me that because he tried to ground it in the fact there's never that push in on the stage where it goes to like a fantasy sequence and then they're in a much bigger place and he can move the camera. It's always on the small stage that he has set as the parameters of no we're in this reality and yet he manages to make it seem more fantastical than so many that are like let's do this on the largest sound stage we can and make everything white and it will kind of look like it's in a dream sequence his dream sequences 
just happen in this small space. And it's truly oh, so impressive. Well, to go off of that, if you recall, and I say if you recall as if most people know musical history, back in the day when silence and early films did try to work with musicals, it was meant to give audiences the best seat in the house. You had that proscenium arch and the camera was just straight down the line and that you were watching a filmed play. And that eventually expanded out into the musicals that we would get in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. What Fosse does is he returns us to that time of you're watching this filmed version of something you would have to pay tickets to go see. But at the same time, he's emphasizing that not all of those plays have the big whimsy of West Side Story. There's this interiority to it and just having that stage with Sally Bowles and the Master of Ceremonies performing these sequences. You appreciate them because they're so different when the characters do finally go outside and they take certain scenes in full sunshine. A lot of this movie is also filmed at night or in the dark or in very small, overly stuffed spaces like the boarding house. So that Tomorrow Waits for Me scene, which takes place outside in full sunlight, is very jarring because the rest of the movie is not like that at all. What I appreciate about this movie is how the songs, the Candor and Ebb score, as you mentioned already, several songs were inserted into the film. So I don't know if I necessarily would appreciate this if I saw the stage musical, but at least for the film, most musical movies are songs about love, hope, dreams, wishes. There's this sense of possibility to them. Not cabaret. Cabaret songs are really for every theater kid. Before we started singing Les Mis and On My Own, we were singing, I wasn't singing, but theater kids were singing songs from Cabaret the Movie because a lot of these songs are really cynical or really sad. Mine, hair, and money are all about opportunism and possessions. Maybe this time, which is, again, ever want to have like a drunken karaoke and give me a microphone, I will do my best to be my inner Liza because maybe this time is such a great, not necessarily lover's lament, but it is about this sense of, okay, I'm a big screw up, but... Maybe the world will give me a little something. Maybe this time I'll win, as the song says. And that doesn't happen. Fosse's musical is for the realists, who are just like, the world is a mess, nothing's going to get better, and here are some songs to sing while you're driving down the road, being like, why did I get out of bed this morning? And there's something about the realism of it that's still tempered by the fact that they all still have dreams. All of the people, especially Liza's character, who are performing at this cabaret, are presumably doing it because it's a passion of theirs. They have that deeper artistic call. So even though the circumstances and the world they're in, and then also even the songs they're singing, reflect that dark, almost nihilistic reality, Liza's character towards the end makes a very big choice about her and Brian's relationship. When she's explaining it, one of the things she's saying is essentially, I can't be trapped 
in a marriage with you and go to England and be drying laundry in a small kitchen and miserable. And the main reason that she ends up confessing is because she still wants to be an actress. That is just one of the shrewd lines this film is drawing of you can have all of this bleakness and you can have this world around you, but artists and dreamers, dreaming is part of what they do. It's what keeps art being made at all. Having Sally Bowles, which is such a wonderful character, the more you pull back, because at first we meet Sally Bowles and you're like, wow, this woman is a lot. I'm sure she would be enjoyable in a party setting. That's the friend that you and your other friend are texting about all the time. Oh, Sally, she's a lot. And she alludes to that as much, that she doesn't have friends. She's so hungry for Brian's friendship even at first. She is lying to herself a lot of the time. And then she perpetuates those lies, like with her background, her relationship with her father, how happy she is. So she is this whole bundle of really human traits in the package of an all-singing, all-dancing, oblivious-to-the-world Muppet, centering it around her and having her balance out how all these songs, because they are nice. If these songs were genuinely positive, it would be at odds with the dinginess and grit and realism of the Kit Kat Club playing really nicely off of all of those things, having songs that are about being money grabby or mocking the social structures and how men are in charge. And that her big belting song, which again, they added for this, the maybe this time, it's literally called maybe this time. What is more optimistic than that? And it's the most Sally Bowles of songs because it is just, listing this litany of terrible stuff that she's gone through, how many times she's been disappointed, and yet, maybe this time, and by the end, her arms are wide open, her head is thrown back, she's the embodiment of optimism. Having that as the center of all of this darkness is just another brilliant stroke, but also their choices of adding this song and of how the story's maneuvers a little differently from the stage show really hones in on that. We got to talk about Liza. We got to, because this is her movie. This was really her fourth film as an adult actress. I'm not counting in the good old summertime, which was her debut at the age of two. It's probably her most famous. This won her the Academy Award, one of eight that this movie would win, which we'll talk about in a sec. It is definitely the most Liza Minnelli-ist role of her oeuvre. To continue to tie this into film history, it really ties into her own history with her mother. I don't believe that Bob Fosse cast her because she was Judy Garland's daughter, but I think it adds that extra punch that she was Judy Garland's daughter. Much like the films that her mom did, Judy Garland is a performer and in the film she did was always a dreamer, but she always came at a disadvantage. She was either hopelessly naive. She wasn't a guy's girl. She always was looking for love, both on screen and off. 
she was that character that was relatable to women who didn't always have the quick line didn't look like she could have a cigarette hanging out of her mouth looked like she was perpetually 17 years old a lot of what makes sally Bowles so appealing as a character is because of liza minnelli looking and being very similar to her mom that's not a detriment to this movie that makes a rich layer of what this movie is which I think was all predetermined by Bob Fosse. I'd like to think that he was this auteur who planned this all out. Maybe he didn't. But when you watch Sally go through this relationship with Brian, and it's obvious it's never going to work out, but she just remains so hopeful. She doesn't want to be confined by the strictures of what she knows in America or in England would be set out for her, which is to be this housewife. She wants to be a star, damn it she might not ever get that far and Liza Minnelli will unfortunately always be compared to her mom so there's a little bit of art imitating life imitating art but she has her own niche at the Kit Kat Club she is the star there and that's good enough it's funny because I was looking back to swing time a few times while re-watching this because we had just talked about it and I so recently watched it but I did have the thought of oh man re-watching a Judy Garland as a comparison to this would have also been a trip one of the many differences is they also do a nice job of setting up the dancer and physical side of Liza right away the most dancing she does the whole time is in her opening number and it's again ironic because she's wearing something which is very reminiscent of the Judy Garland short-shorted tuxedo. So it's both this compare contrast, but she's moving in a way that we certainly never saw Judy Garland move. Liza is so good in this. I know that Michael York was thrust upon him, and he was reticent to work with Liza initially, but she by that time had proven herself. Like you said, she'd had a couple other films and a Tony Award was more established, had proven herself, and ultimately the blend they ended up with with Liza and Michael is wonderful. They had a really great chemistry, but it was also believable because Liza, to me, is the perfect Sally Bowles. Her ability to convey that optimism that I was talking about, but also you fully believe this is someone who is not been treated well by the world. She's not the most conventionally beautiful woman, and she's not styled like it either. She's always a little bit of an oddball who wants to be because of that, because she knows she's not the typical star. She wants to be a supernova. Like, oh, fine, I'm not a typical star. I'm better than that. Her vulnerabilities and ability to convey those which were reminiscent of Judy's you look at her and you're like I don't know if I'm sensing your mother's years of struggle in your eyes or the future years of struggle that you'll have before you since I am a viewer in 2020 she just does such really wonderful work both her stuff on stage as the singing and dancing Sally Bowles but also she has an effervescent quality that is so there. And like I said, Sally is someone who lives with blinders and has a real shield up. 
she's intentionally portraying a false identity, a heightened identity. When you get to the end and that crumbles down and she has a scene where her enormous lashes are off and the crazy color eyeshadow is smeared, she looks so tiny and tired and vulnerable. And that's when she has her most vulnerable discussion with Brian. That's when you're like, oh, the scope of it. If it had just been the, oh, darling, hand me this. This movie does make me want to call everybody darling, for the record. When she's just the larger-than-life effervescent, if she was only that. In the reverse of most things, you start with the smaller, and you build up to that big character. And this movie, and the shape of Sally, is she starts huge, but her performance does tweak down and tweak down to this vulnerable ending. She's so talented. I wish that there were so many more performances through her career that tapped into just how many levels Liza was capable of operating on. I don't think she knew at the time that this one was unlocking everything that would be shown, but I wish that there had been more of them. Liza and Joel Grey had been cast before Fauci was attached. Liza had also auditioned for the show, and they did not cast her at the time because they said she was too inexperienced. By this point, she'd also already been nominated for an Oscar for The Sterile Cuckoo. Fauci only cast Michael York. He did not want Joel Grey, and they told him either Joel Grey stays or you go. Oh, that was it. I had Michael York and Joel Grey conflated because I knew there was someone already attached. But Liza is so brilliant. The only issue I have is her makeup is a bit anachronistic. This happened a lot in later musicals because the 60s and 70s had such iconography that it felt like that had to blend. So I know Liza based her look on Louise Brooks, but those big eyelashes... That hair is straight out of Rowan and Martin's laughing. I will never get it. Just like with Barbara in Funny Girl. Those hairstyles are straight out of 1968. That is not vaudeville. Thank you. I do want to bring up Joel Grey. Because Joel Grey is probably my favorite part of the movie. Please do. Joel Grey has done a couple other musicals. This is the high point. Although, shout out to the Fantastics. He plays the Master of Ceremonies here. He's the first face we see with his performance of Bill Coleman, which is utter brilliance. The whole movie, he just keeps popping up as this great chorus to chart how things are changing. He has just got this ebulence to him, this, if anybody's seen Pinocchio, the honest John element of like steering you off the path to this world of salaciousness. And he works with the androgyny really, really well. What he does with his musical performances is really emphasize how frightening things are. You start with some of the smaller sequences, like money, there's this humor to it. Is Two Ladies before the song with the monkey? Yes. So Two Ladies is also very humorous, although if you see the version with Alan Cumming, it's two dudes in drag, which is really interesting. Then the song with the gorilla that he's dancing with a person in an ape costume which is emphasizing the change into this whole subplot against the Jews that we would see with the rise of World War II. It's almost like they're making this commentary about how silly it is to have people 
separated based on arbitrary factors. And then it all culminates with the end where they, that you get that fisheye shot of the sea of Nazis and just the look on Joel Gray's face that he can't hide it anymore. This insular world that he's tried so hard to keep buoyant will eventually sink. His reaction to how things go informs how the rest of the movie goes. He is a really fascinating Greek chorus, like you said. I love that his character is the master of ceremonies. That's his name. We only see him on stage. There's a couple of shots of him in the wings. He's just making faces at Liza. They'll have an exchange, but it's just the making faces. He doesn't have any other lines. It's like he's her conscience. Yeah. How he's utilized is so interesting, but also that the Nazi presence is increasing. And the very first night we're at the Kit Kat Club, we see a Nazi kicked out. You could get a sense maybe that the MC is aware of it or maybe not. It grows and grows. But what I love is although he does take in the increasing presence of the outer world into their club, by the end, the last shot is reveals that there's all of these Nazis in uniform in the audience. That last shot is not a direct shot of the audience. It is a shot of a reflective gold surface. And then you see the audience mirrored back into it. It's still through this almost delusional sheen because what we've also seen is the film ends with the master of ceremonies starting a new show. He's also not changing the show. He still has his crazy makeup on. The dancers have their presumably very risque outfits. It felt much more of the orchestra on the Titanic that was going down with the ship, that the master of ceremonies may see those things now, but he's going to filter them through shiny gold and the show will go on as it goes on. There may be Nazis watching. It is not a show for Nazis. There's something about what we get even in the smallest way of his character about that, that we've seen through the choices he's made. He's been in drag in the show. He does a very specific song with this gorilla. Because the whole song is, if you could see her like I see her, you would love her. And then he stops singing and just says, even if she was a Jew or something like that, even if she was Jewish. So there's a steadfastness to this person who seems otherworldly, who seems untethered and sprightly, but is obviously committed to this bohemian, safe, artistic space, regardless of what he's facing in the audience. There is that subplot between Fritz, the friend of Brian's, and Marissa Berenson's character, Natalia. Marissa Berenson, yeah. Who is the daughter of wealthy Jewish parents. And there is that subplot about him being non-Jewish, German Jew who's Protestant, or he's trying to pass as Protestant? Yeah, he's been passing as Protestant, and it's amazing because normally, what a unique angle into that story, his whole thing is he starts out as a gigolo, he's gonna woo her for her money, and then he ends up actually falling in love with her, and she can't be with him because he's not Jewish, 
And so the idea of bringing Jewish identity into this story and into the world of the characters via this man who is already passing as Protestant, they don't know that they've been friends with a Jewish person this whole time. And thankfully, obviously, the main characters we're with are fine with it, are fine with it. What a dismissive for the time that it's set in. That what we see for the Jewish story is this man who has to say, I chose to pass as Protestant because I know which way the wind is blowing. I know this is safest for me and for me to follow my heart and tell her that I'm Jewish so we can be married will put me at threat is a really crazy and smart angle in on a romance to elevate that because in other hands, that whole storyline would have been so different. Don't you think? I do. I do. And it's really Fosse's attempt to give us that old-fashioned love story. There's this Romeo and Juliet forbiddenness to it, yet it almost seems so arbitrary, to us at least, because they're both Jewish. There should be no impediment, but because of all the political machinations and how those things do make a difference, it does affect their relationship. You root for them, and it's a nice foil to sally and brian who are this very unconventional couple but where fritz is passing as a protestant brian is passing or at least trying to grapple with his sexuality is he gay is he not and that was something that isherwood was dealing with as well in his own personal life when he went to berlin and he did eventually meet a british cabaret singer named gene ross that it was the sally bowles character she became pregnant with another man's child, and Isherwood had to pretend to be her husband, or at least the man who had impregnated her, in order for her to secure an abortion. That is slightly different in the movie, but you still have this emphasis of characters passing, whether that's sexuality, whether that's religion, whether that's just trying to sell themselves as an exciting woman of the world like Sally Bowles, there is this emphasis of lies that factors into every relationship. Michael York is adorable. I have a slight crush on him in this movie. And it was so funny to watch this and then follow it up with Logan's Run, which was probably not the double feature I should have done when I had my Michael York face because Logan's Run is, oh, that's a movie. One day we might talk about Logan's Run. He really works is this blank slate of a character that everybody just bounces stuff off of. Comes into the middle of this, he has no idea what's going on. He is the prim English man, awash in this weird sexuality. Characters are very eccentric and idiosyncratic. He's also dealing with maybe he's gay. I love that the movie allows him to embrace that in about as 1972 a way as we can. Him and Sally have this weird love triangle with Max that they're both into him, but really Max just really isn't into any of them. He's just a hedonist. He also is well cast in this film. First off, if we talk about Logan's run, it's just going to be you and I, because there's no way Samantha Ellis is watching (laughs) Logan's run. Michael York was so well cast in this. He's just a beautiful man. Very, very British. Funny, because at one point... She's implied he's gone to Oxford. And he's like, oh no, Cambridge. But he has this plummy accent. You're like, well, it was one of the two. That's where people <laughs> like you are from. You were born in a 
in a boater hat. He was born in a manor house. Exactly. Because he's so beautiful and has like cheekbones and these soft lips and this beautiful jawline. As a bisexual character of any era, but especially then, he portrays it really well because you very much believe his connection, including sexually with Sally, but then also there is a very palpable energy and heat between himself and the Baron. And then you find out that they were also lovers. In terms of needing a character that is someone that she is immediately attracted to, who has this other escapade later, but also has this very staid British. Michael York has to do a lot of things that seem like they should be at odds. He's the least imaginable person to be in this very hedonistic bohemian world. And yet he fits in so well. He's such a lovely foil for her. And it honestly reminded me of the dynamic of the way we were of Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand, this very classically handsome man. And then this unique spark of life woman. I love Michael York. I still love Michael York. (laughs) He's my second favorite soft boy in classic cinema. Because your first is Kier Dahlia. Kier Delay, yeah. Delay, yes. <laughs> I know you're canon, girl. But I also think what works here is he almost does work a bit as a Fosse facsimile in that Fosse was well known to just be flagrant with sex. And much like that, you get these characters who are very similar. They are just wantonly having sex with whomever and doesn't really matter, although it does matter. For Sally, it definitely matters. For Brian, it definitely matters, even though they keep talking about how, like, they don't care. This was nominated for several Academy Awards, and it won eight, including Best Actress for Liza, Best Actor, Supporting Actor for Joel Grey, Fosse won, Cinematography, Art Direction, Sound, Editing, and Music. The only ones it did not win were Writing and picture. Drea, do you know what won Best Picture in 19... 19- this film was beaten by The Godfather. It still annoys me now, or it's frustrating now, but especially for Cabaret, which to this day, 40-some years later, holds the record for having won the most Oscars while not winning Best Picture. I just find it insulting to the film that you could look at it as being the best of its craft in areas that included acting, direction, cinematography, all editing, all of these things. And yet, no, we're going to give best picture to The Godfather because that's even now, I mean, it's The Godfather. I'm not going to sit here and besmirch The Godfather, but that is still a more traditional film, a mafia movie. It's about generations family and crime fine what cabaret did was so much more revolutionary for filmmaking and that it stuck the landing in all of those choices is the kind of thing that deserves that accolade i'm not crazy i'm not gonna be like oh the godfather this is no how green was your valley (laughs) (laughs) i've seen the godfather once And I haven't seen The Godfather 2. One day I'll get to that. One day we might do that on the podcast. But we know that Sam probably won't watch any of them. Because they're 
Too new. <laughs> well, you might have to twist my arm into it because as much as I can see the empirical points of The Godfather, mafia movies bore the shit out of me. Really? Interesting. Yeah, I'm not into mafia movies. That might be a topic for... Maybe that'll be our next Patreon goal. If we get to X amount of dollars, we'll have to do The Godfather. Anything else we want to touch on about Cabaret before we close it out? Us waiting until the last minute to bring up Gwen Verdon and her, her uncredited, mostly influence on this, how it affects both a lot of the casting choices for the dancers, for what they're wearing, for the movement, for how it's framed, for keeping Fosse focused. Gwen Verdon was an extraordinary presence and collaborator with him. The touches she has. Like I said, the second we enter the movie, we enter the Kit Kat Club, and you are struck by A, these dancers are, not to use this phrase again, they're not all traditionally beautiful. They're incredible dancers. They are styled in these very unique ways that is a look like no one else. They look like they've been around, especially if you look at the, the band. First off, I would have been a woman in the band. I probably would have been the woman sitting with the banjo on top of the piano. And those are Gwen Verdon's touches. They elevate everything about this world so much. So that is the one last thing I would like to get across. There is so much we could say about Fosse just in general and Gwen Verdon. And I could do a whole podcast probably that is just Fosse related. Cabaret is one of my favorite movie musicals. It's amazing for me to talk about it. A lot of things I didn't know I came up with while we were discussing it. And I really do think it is Fosse's tribute to the musical, but also showing that the musical that we knew, the swing times, the singing in the rains were dead. And Hello Dolly did put the nail in the coffin. And that is a very old school, big budget Hollywood musical. And Fosse's really commenting that the things that we love about musicals of that time period were no longer relevant in 1972. Even now, if you look at the state of musicals in 2020, a lot of what we get is throwbacks to the golden era. You're not getting a lot of redos of cabaret. I'm trying to think of the last gritty anti-musical, and the only one I keep thinking of is Inside Lewin Davis, and even then I don't really think that works. One of the reasons for that is that we've landed on the audience for musicals needs to be a family audience because they need to make back the money they're putting into these. The differences to that are La La Land is obviously not a family story, but it's definitely not a cabaret. Moulin Rouge was aiming for the closest in terms of trying to put their actors in the place in the world that they were in and the threats they were under. It literally has a rich duke instead of a baron. It also has the Baz Luhrmann 360-degree fantasy element of it. So it's not grounded in the same way the cabaret is. I don't think anyone's tried to take this on, but I would be delighted if somebody proved us wrong. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can email your thoughts to us about musicals, Liza Minnelli, Bob Fosse, Soft Boys. Email them to ticklishbiz at gmail.com, and we'll read them on the next episode. You can follow my goings-on on Twitter at journeys underscore film. I also do a classic film blog 
com, where you can read my reviews and LA events, repertory screenings. Drea Clark, where can fans find and get in touch with you, hear all your other stuff? I am on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I have a movie podcast on Maximum Fun called Who Shot Ya? You can always follow the podcast directly at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. We're also on Stitcher Radio, Player FM, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts because it helps the podcast out. You can always follow us on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. We are doing a lot of not just news about what podcast episodes are coming up, but we're also doing a lot of contests. We just gave away a copy of Julie Andrews' autobiography homework. We do a lot of giveaways because I have a lot of stuff to give away. So please follow us on Twitter so that you can win some free merch. But if you want to go beyond that and you want to help support the podcast and influence what we talk about, maybe get us to talk about The Godfather or Logan's Run, then consider supporting us via Patreon. We have a ton of perks. Your donations go straight back into the podcast. Patrons right now can have access to two amazing pins designed by our own Samantha Ellis. I also have a bunch of interviews with various classic film personalities and directors, and I do a bunch of bonus podcasts, including double features and based on a true podcast, and Hitchcast is also coming soon. If you're interested in becoming a patron, head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Well, we're going to close out Musical March, and we're going to do our pre-TCM Classic Film Festival episode with a, a little fun and whimsy We're doing a recast episode wherein we take classic films and recast them with modern actors. How that's going to happen, I have no idea because I just decided that we should do an episode and I have no idea what the logistics of that episode will be. But we are soliciting suggestions. So if you have a classic film that you want us to recast or modern film that you want us to recast with classic actors, we'll literally take anything. Send them to us via Twitter and they might end up on our tentative recast episode but that will be next time